welcome to the Political Deactivist podcast. Why am I in my living room today? Well, a lady was arrested in Melbourne for posting something on Facebook. Now, I've posted much worse on Facebook, so if the police bust down my door, I want you guys to see it. It could happen any moment now. It might even happen during this recording. Now, we have an awesome show lined up for you. Uh, we interview Bindi Cole. Now, Bindi Cole's story is actually in the movie Another Way. You can see that at anotherwaymovie.com, where she goes from a social justice warrior queen into a conservative-minded uh, individual. We're going to be talking about art. We're going to be talking about philosophy. And we are going to be talking about council culture. Well, at the time that I entered in the, into the court case against Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun, I didn't understand how important uh, free speech was and remains. And so I hadn't looked into ideas around Western civilization, around democracy, uh, capitalism. Uh, I hadn't looked into the the amazing legacy that the Judeo-Christian history has given us of absolute freedoms. And so I, I didn't really understand. But as I went through this Christian conversion, which uh, was the impetus for a political conversion, I began to read and read and read and read and read. And as I read, I began to have revelation that uh, I was on the wrong side. I was fighting for the wrong things. Bindi, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you're very welcome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your life leading up to your, I guess, your political conversion or your political journey? What were you doing before this? Actually, I kind of went through the political conversion from left to right as a result of undertaking a PhD. So prior to that, I'd gone through a Christian conversion, um, which was a long, slow process. In some ways, I was kind of the most reluctant Christian to be converted, um, which is why it took so long. And then I kind of went through that and then I began to do a PhD. And at the start of the PhD, I began to um, delve into politics for the first time in a serious way. And as I did that, um, I came to realise that, one, I had a political position I kind of hadn't really articulated it in any serious way prior to that other than repeating media mantras. Um, and then two, the political position that I had was incorrect. Um, and so that was, it was quite shocking to me for a while and very uncomfortable too, to realise that everything that I thought that I had invested in was kind of wrong to a degree. Um, and that I had been on the wrong side and was now moving to the other side. I, I just didn't expect it. I didn't expect it on the back of a Christian conversion. Um, but I'm so thankful that I went through it. So were there people that, uh, I guess, it could be very isolating to when you change both philosophies of your life at the one time. So what was that like? Did you feel isolated? Were there people supporting you? Were there people going against you? What was your experience like? It was really a mishmash of all of those things. The Christian conversion took the best part of 10 years, really. And across that 10 years, I did have some people uh, question it, but certainly not as thoroughly as when I came out 
as having moved from the left to a conservative position. That really forced a, um, a sifting of my life. A lot of people at that point walked away from me. Friends of 20 years, family members, um, community, community, community uh, the Victorian arts community pulled away from me. And so that was a much shorter, sharper shock in some respects, having that response. But sorry, I should just add simultaneously, other people came on board. So as people left, other people came on board. It's just, I just kind of developed new communities and for my art, a new audience, I suppose, kind of. We can get into that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's such a, you know, to change your political view is such like a, a pointy issue for people and such a maker or breaker for friendships? I think because emotions involved and politics are in alignment with your core beliefs. And so when you rattle somebody's political cage, they don't necessarily have they may not have taken the time as I did to really delve deeply into political positions. They might just have political positions as their core values. You know, especially I think with the secularization of our society, it's almost as if the government has become the higher authority. And so when you rattle the higher authority in their world, that's too much, that's a deal breaker. And also, I also when you're looking at the left-right divide, and I know there's a lot of issues with that, but for the sake of easy kind of access to understanding it, um, the left seem to be far less tolerant of diverse ideas uh, than the right. The right seem to be more open to sitting with you, understanding, listening, um, and potentially having their mind changed, although I don't really know about that, but at least more tolerant in or accepting of different ideas, um, whereas I guess diversity is framed differently on the left. It's more about immutable characteristics, whereas diversity seems to be more about ideas on the right. Tell us a bit about uh, your artwork and what you try and um, what you try and achieve and what you try and communicate with um, your art today. And even even when you started, why why even be an artist? Well, I come from um, an, a heritage of artists or creatives. My mum was a playwright. Uh, my auntie's a playwright. I have uh, my grandfather's a painter. My great aunt was a painter. My grandmother was a journalist. So I even have a, a, a violin maker, uh, an inventor, uh, in not, not too far back as well. So I just come from this kind of creative lineage for starters. And so I grew up around creative people. Uh, two, I think there, there came a point in my life where I realised that for me as a person who was creatively kind of uh, designed, I need a creative outlet in my life to help process my world and my life and understand it. So my art, it's not pretty art. I don't paint. I'm not making objects that you might hang on your wall. It's more that I'm using art actually in a very postmodern way to understand identity, um, which is a very contemporary form, usage of art. 
Um, and my art from the beginning has been a postmodern practice in that it's conceptual. So the idea supersedes the aesthetic or the design, firstly. And secondly, in that it centres me in it, generally. Um, and I've used it as a way to unpack and explore my identity and put it out into the world, see my identity through others' eyes and then reconcile that back to me. And that's kind of been the, the cycle that I've gone through over and over and over in my art. And so then I'm talking about different aspects of identity. So initially it was looking through, looking at identity through the lens or the prism of identity politics and, and therefore social justice. But then as I went through my Christian conversion and kind of came out the other side, I used it to understand the conversion experience that I was going through and even the political experience, um, which ultimately ended up in my kind of excommunication from the, the art world. Right. And is there any separation between uh, how, well, I guess your persona and your artwork, like is it hard to separate your work and, and life? Can you say this is this is an artwork and this is me or are they blended all together? Well, in some ways I am quite confessional through my artwork and it is voyeuristic in that sense. You do get an insight into my world, into my past and into things that a lot of people wouldn't talk about. So I was incarcerated for years. I talk about being in prison. I have gone through the political conversion. I talk about the left to the right. I talk about... Um, skin colour and different things that a lot of people don't kind of navigate through. And you might think that you know me through those artworks, but on the flip side, I actually keep my life, my day-to-day -day life, my family, my husband, my children, very private. So I, it's quite strategic in one sense. I give you an insight into things that I need to reconcile, but it doesn't actually mean that you know me at all in some ways you wouldn't know my friends my family my kids you would but people out there <laughs> wouldn't know them wouldn't know their names wouldn't know our day-to-day -day lives you know wouldn't know the circles that i move in or that kind of stuff so there is definitely a separation um and it's it's good that it's like that yeah my favorite scene in the documentary that you took part in was just your daughter's voice before we're introduced to your story, which I just, I, I emailed you. I'm like, we have to have this in there. I know you said your kids aren't in there, but this has to go in. And thank you so much for letting me put that in there. How's but, it going, um, the documentary? It's going good. It's been shadow banned, which is quite uh, frustrating. So if you type anything you can possibly think of to try and find it. So it's called Another Way. So you go Another Way documentary, nothing comes up. Political documentary, nothing comes up. Randall Evans, Another Way doesn't come up the only way to see it is if you have the link to it um which is just the nature of uh big tech at the moment but uh let's talk about uh what we talked about in the um doco which was this uh portrait you did and it's quite relevant now because of all these um uh sweeping cancellations of shows that have blackface in them it's almost like a zero tolerance policy um, so I'm kind of grateful I've only been shadow banned and not completely banned. Um, so why did you make this uh, blackface work? So it's actually called Wrong Mob and it's a portrait of myself and some members of my family in blackface. Um, and I made it in 
2008, uh, right at the beginning of my artistic practice. It was kind of the second, second series that I ever made. At the time, I, I had been, I had had, to really give you a brief kind of lead up to making this work, I had had a very traumatic life uh, that involved living with uh, being a single child to an, an only child to a single mother who had been a heroin addict, a prostitute and a stripper. She was creative and a writer too, but she was also these things. Um, I had spent some years, that, that meant that I had been abused physically, sexually, I'd been neglected, I had been moved around from pillar to post, I'd spent a number of years not living with her, living with my Aboriginal grandmother. I'd come back to her when I was 13 years old. She was off heroin at that time, but she smoked marijuana and drank alcohol. She smoked marijuana daily and drank alcohol regularly and heavily. She introduced me to those things at 13. I then began to smoke marijuana with her every day, smoke cigarettes, drink regularly. Um, and then three years later, when I was 16, she died from cancer. And I watched her slowly die. And what that showed me at that point in my 16-year-old brain was that life was not worth it. Why bother trying when I'd watched her work hard to get off heroin, make success of herself, and then die slowly? I just thought, stuff life, stuff everyone, I don't care. And I deep dove into an eight-year drug addiction that included a relationship with a guy for four years who was a dealer who beat me. To get away from him, I kind of, in my early 20s, I went over to London where I picked up drugs the day that I arrived. I'm very entrepreneurial. It just depends on whether it's being used for good or evil. <laughs> um, uh, within a year of being in London, I was dealing drugs. I was down to 42 kilos, overdosing, going into psychosis. I end up getting arrested and sentenced to four years in a British jail. Um, I served two years. I get out. Uh, that's where I first encounter, encounter Christianity. I served two years. I get out. I come back to Australia. Within a year of being in Australia, I'm studying photography at TAFE. And as soon as I finished that, I realised that what I want to do is use photography or art as a way to um, understand my identity and explore who I am. Because you've got to understand that I had, since I was 13, I'd been on drugs and then I'd ended up for a couple of years in prison. And for the first time in my life, I was, um, for the first time since then, I was without drugs, straight, in the world and I, I honestly had no idea who I was in some respects I, I who was I without drugs without prison without all of this stuff and so I began to explore my identity initially like I said through the prism of identity politics I also didn't really I have family and I have this but for the best part I really looked to the media to understand who I was and I think many of us do. We look to see our, ourselves reflected back um, to us in somebody else's eyes. Um, and especially if you're not necessarily getting that from your family, you're trying to find it elsewhere. Who am I? Where do I belong? And so I have Aboriginal heritage. My father's Victorian Aboriginal, Wadawurrung. I'd spent years living with my Aboriginal grandmother. And so the very first thing I did 
of course, was try to understand who I was through this kind of intersectional way. I'm a woman, I'm oppressed, I'm, I'm Aboriginal, I'm oppressed, I'm, you know, I'm these things, I'm oppressed, I'm a victim. And of course, I really could justify myself as a victim because of the life that I'd lived too. And so I, I made this work, Wuthering Mob, portrait of myself and my family in blackface, to, and I'm fair-skinned. For people who are listening to this, I'm actually fair-skinned. I'm not dark-skinned. Yet my whole life I had been told I was Aboriginal. I've been told that I should be proud of it. Um, yet clearly when I would present as Aboriginal to people, they would say, well, you would, but you're not really Aboriginal because I'm so fair-skinned. And so I thought I'm going to first and foremost really come out as an Aboriginal person and take what is an historically racist visual cue blackface and subvert it to indicate pride in my heritage and kind of as a big stuff you to all those people who say that I'm not Aboriginal and so I made this image while the wrong mob and put it out into the world and of course it ruffled some feathers <laughs> in a big way so uh whose feathers did it ruffle what happened after that well, it was put out via a press release prior to the exhibition opening. So I made it for a show at, in Victoria here at a, a place called the Centre for Contemporary Photography, the, CC, the CCP, which is not the Chinese Communist Party, but the Centre for Contemporary Photography. Is there a difference, though? Is there I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's run by commies. No, I take that back. That was really lovely. But... <laughs> um, and it goes out via press release and somehow it lands on um, Andrew Bolt's desk. And at the time he was talking a lot about uh, people who are fair-skinned identifying as Aboriginal for financial and career clout, basically. In all fairness, that's not what I was doing. It was a genuine exploration of my identity. I think from, from the time I was in prison, actually what happened was it, it kind of sparked this truth-seeking journey that I, I went on for the next 10 years. And this was part of it. It was like I'm con I was constantly, and if you go through my practice, you'll see I'm constantly testing ideas, putting them out there. It's trying, I'm trying to find the truth of things. And this, this image was one of those kind of truth seeking things. How will it be reflected back to me? But he saw it and it, and it fit in with what he was talking about at the moment at that time. Um, and in some ways having come full circle, I kind of agree with him now to a degree. <laughs> we can get to that. But at the time he began to write and blog about me and hold me up as the poster child for the opportunistic fair-skinned Aboriginal person or First Nations person, which is the, the term that everybody's using now. And, um, and he wrote about me for about two years, uh, blogging in various articles. And at some point I was contacted by a, an Aboriginal legal firm asking me if, he, if I wanted to join with a group of other fair-skinned Aboriginal people and take him to court to defend 
our position. Um, actually, it was off the back of an article he wrote called It's, it's So Hip to be Black, where he named and shamed about 10 of us, I think, and starting off with me and um, all of these people, academics, artists, um, professionals, whatever. And so I banded together with this group thinking somewhat naively that it was going to be an opportunity for me to defend my character. That's what I wanted to do. What it turned out to be was an assault on free speech. So the law that our legal team used, and we ended up getting pro bono, pro bono legal coverage from a huge firm who uh, brought in a QC who was in retirement who likes to set precedents with laws. And the law that we used was called the Racial Discrimination Act, which you know about, uh, which is a law that limits speech based on feelings of offence and humiliation. At the time, I didn't realise I was entering into a battle about free speech. I just wanted to defend my character. Um, and so I went along with the, with the court case, which took ultimately two years, and I ended up being one of two people out of the eight, the eight of us who actually had to get up in federal court and testify. And I did that, and I had to testify to my character, to why I had made those works. That particular work, Wuthering Mob, was shown in federal court. I had to testify as to why I had made it, what were my reasons for making it, and justify it. And in the end, we won the case. We had beaten Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun, his paper, and he had been found guilty of breaching the Racial Discrimination Act, which kind of meant that he had been publicly and legally declared a racist. Um, but by that time, uh, a couple of years into that case, and when it was being called, I think it was about 2012 at that point, I was really beginning to embrace Christianity and it was starting to trigger a change in me, not only around politics. At that time, the political change wasn't happening so much, but certainly around this notion of uh, people condemning people. You know, we're so quick to condemn everybody else all the time. This person's a racist, a bigot, a homophobe, this or that, whereas I was starting to see things from a very different perspective. So the first, I, I was going through this Christian conversion, but the, the very first thing that was happening was I was beginning to see myself not as the victim anymore. And so I was coming out of identity politics in a way um, and starting to see how I had actually done a whole lot of wrong and how... I was not only a victim but a perpetrator and it was shifting my perspective. It was a long, slow shift, but I was starting to see how we are all good and bad. We are all capable of all sorts of things all the time and I was starting at that point even to feel uncomfortable about what, what I had done and what I had participated in. But it wasn't until a couple of years later that I really came full circle. And you actually went on to Andrew Bolt's show and had a talk to him about it after the fact. So how did that go? What did you, um, how are you feeling in that moment? Well, that was quite a number of years after. 
I, as I said, I was starting to come out of this identity politics bubble. Um, I then started to do a PhD where I, for the first time, identified my political position as being very progressive. I had been very progressive. In fact, I, I kind of think that if Antifa was around today in Australia, I would probably be part of Antifa. I was that progressive. Um, and I started to look into ideas of, first, Christian uh, legacy, Christian Judeo history and its legacy in this country, ideas around freedom, freedom of speech, around conservative and progressive politics. I began to look at both sides of politics and it sparked this conversion in me that made me realise at the end of it a couple of years ago that I had kind of, that I had done the wrong thing in, in taking him to court using those laws. I think the idea of defending my character was always fair and justified. I, I always had a right of response in terms of the smear against who I am. I just think that defamation laws or a different law would have been better than using the Racial Discrimination Act that limits speech because I, I then came full circle understanding how important free speech is to a free society, as we've learned <laughs> today. Um, but so... A couple of years ago, I'm starting to have these thoughts and these feelings that I, my politics have changed. I'm starting to regret the part that I played in this huge federal court case. And so I make some videos, because I'm an artist, talking about the change that I'd gone through, the political stance, the difference. And a couple of, maybe about six months after I released the videos, Andrew Bolt sees it, sees it again. And I also remake the original rather wrong work, uh, the blackface work into memes because I'm changed and that work doesn't really represent me anymore. So I remake that. I make these videos. Andrew Bolt sees it. In the videos, I talk about how my politics have changed, how one of the, one of the ways they changed was firstly by going through this court case and being becoming aware of conservative ideas and how I was beginning to regret what I'd done. He calls me up that day on the phone and I apologised to him for taking him to court under those laws. I clarified I might use defamation, but I apologised. And we had a good talk and he invited me onto his show, uh, which we booked in. The next day when I woke up, he had written about me in the paper and he apologised to me publicly in an article saying that he was sorry that he had said things about me, the things that he had done. And he said that I had apologized to him and that I was going on his show. And I ended up going onto his show a couple of weeks later and we publicly reconciled. Um, and I gave the reasons that I had come to this place, which was because I had converted to Christianity. And what I discovered was that there was no victimhood identity in Christianity. I had had to take, a, take responsibility for everything I'd ever done. Um, I didn't believe that he was a racist at all. Um, I now really believed in free speech. And I felt like I had a responsibility to come and speak out against the very structure that I had helped to build against free speech. So it was a real full circle moment. Why do you think it is that a lot of people in the arts uh, in this generation, I guess, don't understand the value of free speech or free expression? I, I, I don't know how they reconcile those two things. What have you discovered with people that you know? Is it 
Oh, they think that they are for free speech. That's the thing. They think that the art world and all of its institutions, the galleries, the dealers, this and that, are all promoting uh, open discussion of ideas, but it's not. It's so progressive because the day after I went on the Andrew Bolt show, I was pulled out of an exhibition. Up until that point, for the 10 years previously, I had been in 8 to 10 exhibitions a year at that point I was pulled out and now it's almost two years later and I haven't been in a single exhibition since not one people stopped returning my calls I've been entirely cancelled as an artist but I think that they believe that they are open so for example prior to me going on a bolt show I had made some works about Christianity and they were shown and I've had to think about how come it was okay to show those works but once I've come out as conservative, it's not okay. And I think it's because of the framing, the way that we can frame Christianity, for example. So it can be framed as progressive. And so you can include artworks that explore Christianity in a kind of sincere way, as long as they're not conservative, but could be subjectively received as progressive or critical or that type of stuff. Whereas as soon as you come out with something that is clearly conservative, there's no wiggle room, there's no room for it in the art world whatsoever. I would challenge anyone to walk into a gallery anywhere across the Western world and find a work of art that is both Christian and conservative overtly. You won't find one today, a contemporary work of art. You will not find one. It doesn't exist. There's no space for it. As soon as you come out as an artist who's conservative and Christian, your work now belongs in the church. So I would consider myself more creative-minded than logically-minded, but I find myself craving structure. And when I find something that's clearly true, that's what I cling to. And then everything else is whimsical outside of that. Um, I'm wondering if that's the same for you and if other creative-minded people are attracted to structure and that's why there's a slow shift from, uh, I guess, the creative-minded people on the left towards conservatism or, or libertarianism. It's almost like the opposite of what the world will tell us. So the world will tell us freedom is in having as much option as you like, as much sex as you like, as much drugs as you like, as much swearing as you like, as much food as you like, um, as much openness to everything, that's where freedom lies, right? But actually, I found the opposite to be true. Without structure, without boundaries, without a sense of containment, I actually find myself more in bondage to things. Yeah. And so I think it's the same. It's like, for example, for me, prior to going to prison, in the way that I was parented and in the way that I lived life, I had no boundaries, none. I was a completely extreme person. I could do all of those things, take as much drugs, be as promiscuous, not care about anything. Um, I, I just had no boundaries. And actually what happened in all of that was, was that I became extremely unsafe, in every way and then I went to prison and weirdly for the first time in my life I felt safe 
in this really contained structural space. It was like I got parented for the first time. <laughs> you can't do this. These are your boundaries. These are the rules. This is when you'll eat. This is what you'll wear. This is, but in a weird way, I was like, oh, I'm actually safe. Like I feel very safe. And so I guess it is that picture of, it's almost, it's almost the opposite is the truth. And so as in the arts, it's the same. It looks like it's good. So it looks like all of these ways in which art pushes progressive ideas, which is what it does in the institutional art world anyway, um, is, is therein lies freedom. Therein lies all the answers. It's just, it just, just progress as far forward as the eye can see in every direction you know, and the height you'll reach is, is other men. There's nothing higher. There's nothing. But then if you focus on conservatism where there is a lot of structure, there's tradition, there's frameworks, there's a higher authority, there's a higher sense of ethics and morals, all of these things, there's so much more safety in that, yeah? There's a safety in being hedged in and being contained. And as humans, as much as we think we want all of this freedom, um, I don't I, I don't think it satisfies. I don't think it fulfills our basic need for safety and containment and boundaries. And it's like my children. My children are so um, contained, so contained. They go to bed at the same time every night. They eat similar foods every day. They have very uh, strong structure. My kids are not the bosses. We're the bosses. You know, this is not a child-led household. This is a parent-led household. You are the children. We are the parents. You will listen. It's very, but they are the most joyful, happy kids. And, and I think if, if it wasn't like that, if they didn't have that structure, if they were the bosses, if they were constantly demanding and telling us what to do and they could go to bed at 11 today and two tomorrow and nine the next day, they would be crazy, out of control, screaming, demanding kind of children. And so on every level, in every way, you're right. Structure is what's needed. Even, they say, even in artworks. Exactly. I think even if, I think you need to know the structure or know the rules to be able to break them, right? Um, and just yeah. live within that structure and then you can be creative and and whatever within that kind of framework. Um, so you are living in Melbourne and um, yeah. we kind of alluded before to the fact that someone was arrested uh, for a Facebook post. Um, so what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? How's life been during, yeah. uh, under dictator Dan, as we call him on this show? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's completely outrageous for two reasons. The first is that it's a total impeachment on um, our right to press back on government and the things that they're putting in place, um, not, not even free speech, but just a democratic right to say we don't agree with what our government is doing. Our government is there to serve us, not to be masters over us. Um, so, number one, that's really important to me um, and that it's on Facebook, a Facebook post and then the second part that's really annoying about this whole thing is the hypocrisy. Why is this protest, this is the one that you're going to arrest someone for? It's not even in Melbourne. It's in Ballarat, a dusty little town out the back of Melbourne. Did you see the post that she wrote as well? It was just, it was 
we're going to meet, we're going to wear masks, we're going to socially distance, we're going to come out and we're going to march for our freedom and to shut that down. The other thing that I've, so it's the hypocrisy. There's been protests. In fact, there's photos of police kneeling in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protests. And yet now we have this of police going in and handcuffing this woman. Like it's totally outrageous and unnecessary. And it's almost like a show of force on purpose. Like if you dissent, this is what will happen to you, right? But um, the other thing that I read this morning that I thought was really interesting is that the law that they're using to bring her in is under the Health Act. So it's a law that was established prior to the state of emergency powers, a law that was passed, written and passed through legislation under, guess, guess, uh, who was the health minister in Victoria? Oh, I wouldn't know, actually. I Dan know. Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> he did this law. Stop it. He made this law that, he, that is now being used to arrest this woman. <sighs> Isn't that insane? It Too is much. absolutely insane. One man, one man. So much chaos. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. When, um, when I was putting together um, the documentary that you're in, Another Way, there was a politician in Melbourne from the Reason Party. I think it's the Reason Party, Fiona Patton. And, you know, she was, I interview, interviewed her and, and I was happy. And there's something that just wasn't sitting right because some of the questions she was answering and her, her kind of civil liberties didn't match up with her economic liberties. And I was like, oh, you can't really have one without the other. So I ended up cutting her from the film. And then she was actually the deciding vote on extending yeah. the, the powers. And I was like, well... I guess you got to go with your gut sometimes. <laughs> what is that? Is it undercover? You know, it's like when you, I think about the Liberal Party and all the factions and there's all these people in the Liberal Party who are so clearly left aligned and progressive and, you know, all of these kinds of things. I just don't get it. Why? Why? If you're a particular set of politics, go and be with those people. Why infiltrate or present as something else? It's really quite deceptive. Yeah, well, I, I don't know in terms of her case, but I do know that. So uh, on the lower level, before they actually present uh, bills to parliament, they present it to their members, so party members, and anyone can be a party member. There's certain hoops you have to go through. And so what will happen is people, for example, on the left will infiltrate the Liberal Party so that when they present a bill on the lower level, they say, no, 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 we don't like that. Not vocally, but when they actually do the written vote. And then so they don't really know who's on whose side and it's all very like, it's politics. It's, it's disgusting, but I mean, people need to be aware of this kind of stuff because. Yeah. It's, it's but yet good. if you, you know, from the beginning of this lockdown, I have been putting forward my views on social media saying that this isn't the way to do it that there should never be laws in place forcing us, mandating us to lock down, to mask, that all of these things should be a choice, that I'm happy for my taxpayer dollars to be spent on provisions for the vulnerable and the elderly, yet everybody else should have a choice as to what risk they want to take. Um, and you just get shouted down and yelled at and told you're a conspiracy theorist just for questioning the mechanism, like the method, the methodology. Maybe, just maybe, there's another way. But you can't even put forward another way. You're just a crazy conspiracy 
theorist wearing a tin foil hat, like to just question the government. It's actually quite cultish. Oh, 100%. And I know for a fact that right now, somewhere in the world, someone is actually taking a shower wearing their face mask. I just know it. <laughs> I know they are. It's crazy, crazy times. Even this morning um, with this woman, you know, that footage of her being arrested, it's just mm. infuriating, right? You watch it and you, I just was like fuming at these cops. Um at, at one, that they're arresting her from her Facebook post. Two, that they're handcuffing her in her pyjamas in her home. She's not even resisting arrest. Like, that's completely over the top, all of these things. But then straight away on my Facebook feed, it's like, oh, you know, if she was black, people wouldn't be calling for such leniency. And, I, and I'm just thinking, are you for real? This, for one, this isn't about race. This is about law and justice and a Facebook post and not trusting the government and all of these things. But two, we never stop hearing about black people being unjustly arrested or attacked or killed. or like It's not like there's no voice out there. People talk as if black people don't have a voice. They have a humongous global voice. They are not the voiceless. The voiceless are black people, but those in community who are being abused by other black people. Sorry about that. That's really unpopular, but truth. You're going to get us demonetized, but that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> They're the voiceless, not the people claiming racism. Um, yeah. So how's your, are you still working on the uh, giant emu feather work? How's that going? It's finished. It's finished? Are it's you, finished. Where, where's it going to go? Where can people see it? Well, nowhere as of yet because I'm, I don't have any galleries or places that will show any of my work and especially a work like that. <laughs> you want to tell people about it? I don't think they know. Um, it's a large scale. Well, in my practice, I have a history of making work like this. This will be probably the third or fourth time I've done it where I make large text-based installations, um, words and sayings made out of emu feathers um, and so his, in the past, I did a huge one that was 10 metres long that said, I forgive you. And that was in response to um, what I was going through in my Christian conversion, but also to Kevin Rudd's apology. And then this one has taken about a year or so to make. My husband actually stuck every single feather on this one almost. Um, so he should get some credit, Daniel. <laughs> um, I designed it. He kind of produced it. But this one is bigger. It uses about 50,000 emu feathers. It's um, uh, probably about 15 metres long and it spells out welfare is slavery. And I started making it maybe two years ago, um, but it seems even more relevant today. Uh, with everybody on JobKeeper and JobSeeker and and everything else. Yeah, it looks like we're locking into things that's going to be very, very hard to get out of. Yeah. Uh, All of yeah. a sudden we've just, you know, accelerated towards socialism at a really exponential rate, you know. We, were, we kind of had a little bit of it here, but now it's like whew, we're shooting off towards it. Yeah. One of the things that um, struck me, later in life was that so i studied economics in high school two or four years i can't remember now but 
the way that they teach economics and the way they teach every subject in high school and all through uni, depending on what you study, obviously, um, is that, you know, if you get an economics exam, it will say, okay, this is the situation in your country. Uh, what do you do to change it? And so it's actually teaching people that the government's job is to change the economics or change the job levels or change. They never ever talk about how the market can change things. It's just like, okay, would you raise or lower interest rates? Okay. Would you, um, would you raise or lower welfare? Would you do this or that? And it kind of just indoctrinates people into thinking that control comes from the government and that that's the only answer for anything in that. So now we're in a situation where a pandemic hits the world and it's like, okay, the government's going to save us and they're going to prop up the economy and they're going to give us our jobs and they're going to save our things. And it's just. uh. Right. And if you're teaching economics from that perspective and then simultaneously so much more of what's being taught in universities is underpinned by Marxist ideals around tearing down capitalism um, because that's what's creating inequality. Um, You get what's happening in America right now mm. where they have completely justified the destruction uh, in their minds it's entirely justified because of the inequality that has been brought about by the market so finally we have the market capitalism <laughs> you know yeah um but now it's justified because um it's we're looking for equity of some sort mm. it's abs- it's just crazy yeah it is absolutely insane. So, uh, what do you? Uh, what piece of advice do you have for people going through lockdown? Do you see any hope, or do you think it's just a long slog? Or what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, it looks like it's going to be extended. Um, one of the interesting things is that we've been promised the roadmap out the day after our supposed protests are due to take place, um, which makes me think that it's going to be extended. Um, I mean, for me, I think I, in that situation, would turn to, I turn to my faith and I say, well, okay, in this situation, I am pretty powerless, um, but that I know ultimately for me, God will be bringing it about for my good. He'll be doing things in this time, in this space and in this season for me that, that are foundational for my future. For everybody else who doesn't have faith, what are you going to do? What's what we used to say to each other in prison? Head down, bum up, get on with it. You know, just stop looking, stop thinking about the outside. We didn't talk about the outside. We didn't focus on the outside. We kept our heads inside and we just got on with it until our release date came along. I think they use that phrase in the male prison as well, but it doesn't mean the same thing. (laughs) That's right. That's like pocket rocket. You know, here we say pocket rocket where we're referring to people who are like really bubbly and full Mm. on, but Mm. in America that is not what pocket rocket means. (laughs) So don't say it over there. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, we hope to have you again soon. And uh, uh, our thoughts and prayers will be with you during uh, (laughs) your time under Dictator Dan. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. And I hope that uh, they take the stupid shadow ban off the documentary. Everybody should watch it. Get out and watch it. Thank you for listening. So as we mentioned in the show, it's very hard to find this content. Uh, Even search it yourself. Type in Randall. Type in political deactivist. Type in all of these keywords. It'll be very, very hard to find. So the only way that people are going to find it is if you share it yourself. So please share it. Share it to a friend. Or if you didn't like it, share it to one of your enemies. 
either way like comment subscribe and we'll see you next time